Let's pray together. God, we do again just ask that as our uh, students and leaders come back from camp that um, you would safeguard them on their travels home. And we pray that their time together up in the woods worshiping and sitting under the wisdom of your word would be transformative. We thank you for an opportunity to gather, gather together this morning and we just give you praise and worship and adoration. You are a God who is high above all gods. All creation, from the tiny delicate flower to the burning supernovas, proceeds from your mouth. Creation is, has been accomplished by your word and by your will, and we stand in awe of you for these things. And we confess that we are not worthy even to turn our attention to you to contemplate you. And yet we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself in your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that every word of Scripture is powerful for us as believers. And so I ask that our lives would conform to your word, that we would be sincere in our efforts to follow the teaching of Jesus, that our faith and trust and hope would be in you, that we would be still and know that you are God, and that we would love you for the God that you are. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, teach us, um, humble us before your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, again, I want you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, it's a rather common thing these days for churches to do teaching series on marriage. From time to time, if you're driving around the valley and you see a church billboard, you'll see They've got some upcoming series on marriage. And uh, just the way that we approach teaching at Maricopa Springs, I don't know that we've ever done like a series on marriage. Uh, I tend to believe that if you help people become more like Jesus through the teaching of the word, then naturally marriages will improve as a result. But it's not necessarily guaranteed that if you help people have better marriages, that they will be more like Jesus. And always the goal for us as Christians is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that our lives would reflect him and his goodness and his truth and his beauty. But today we're going to talk about marriage. Um, really, we're going to talk mostly to the women in the room. We're going to talk about what it means to be a wife according to the teachings of Scripture. And next week we're going to address husbands. It wasn't really planned this way, but next week is Father's Day, and so uh, we'll be We'll be bringing it to the husbands and dads next week. But I guess the next two weeks will be something like a marriage series. Okay, so here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter begins this section with this word likewise as we've made our way through the book of 1 Peter. We've talked about some of these transitional words from time to time. This is one of those connecting words that we find in the Bible. And it is telling us that what Peter has written previously is connected to what he's now writing. And in this case, the word likewise is making a similar comparison. So you could say something like, in the same way, or likewise, or similarly. Well, what came before? In the previous verses, Peter was commanding slaves or servants to be subject to their masters. And now he says, in the same way, or similarly, 
let wives be subject to their husbands. In fact, he uses the exact same verb here, be subject. So he's really continuing his teaching on proper authority. And if you want to go back and listen to the YouTube videos of those prior sermons or the audio recordings, you can do that. But he's been talking about proper authority structure for Christians from governing authorities to masters and slaves to now husbands and wives. In other words, just as a slave is under the authority of his master, likewise, a wife is under the authority of her husband. But I think we should really begin a kind of thorough examination of these verses by asking ourselves a really essential question. What is the relational ethic that every Christian is called to? For us as Christians... What should define every relationship that we have? Do you know the answer to that? Of course, the answer is love. As Christians, we're called to love our enemies. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to love God. And of course, in marriage, we're called to love our spouse. So although Peter doesn't mention the word love in these verses, I want you to understand he does not have to use the word love in order to be teaching us about what proper loving relationships look like in the context of marriage. A wife is to love God, and out of her love for God, she is to love her husband, and part of that will drive then the wife to be subject to her husband, to be respectful and pure to adorn herself with an inner beauty, to have a gentle and quiet spirit, to fear only God. These are all aspects of what it looks like for a wife to love her husband. And so it's possible that um, a Christian woman might read these verses, maybe encounter them for the first time as she's growing in her walk with Jesus. And at first she might look at these verses and think, This is a great burden that is being placed upon me as a woman to be subject to my husband. Particularly so in our modern context that really generally rejects biblical wisdom as it's taught. But the heart of a Christian woman as she begins to trust Jesus more, as she grows in her faith in Christ, in time is going to see this is no great burden. This is simply the way of Jesus, the way of love that is being applied particularly to the wife in her position in the context of the marriage. So fundamentally, I want you to understand, Peter is only instructing wives on what it looks like for them to love their husbands and in doing so then to love God in obedience. But in order for us to really accept that, I think we first might have to bring a sledgehammer to the secular worldview that is so frequently rammed down our throats, that is so frequently fed to us that we begin to maybe imbibe it. We have maybe a need to deconstruct our definition of even the word love, and certainly to deconstruct some of the ways that we think about what it means to be male and female. So in our culture, Love does not mean self-sacrifice, does it? Love means self-gratification. If I love you according to the dictates of our culture, then it means that I seek to use you for my self-gratification. That's not a biblical definition of love. And if you went to any secular college campus, or maybe you went to a professional women's association of some sort, or even just any woman at all who's tasted even a small sip of the cultural Kool-Aid that's called feminism, and you asked a woman, what do you think of these verses? She's not going to say to you, wow, this is such a beautiful ideal of what it means to be feminine, of what it means to be a woman, of what it means to love God and honor him in my marriage. She's not going to see an ideal of womanhood operating under the loving heart of Jesus in these verses. No, a secular woman who's been imbibing the values of our culture is going to look at these verses and tell you this is oppressive. This is patriarchal. 
This is tyrannical or maybe even primitive. Like, we got rid of this kind of living and marriage decades ago, didn't we? In the 60s and the 70s. That the Bible unashamedly teaches that wives should be subject to their husbands enrages a world that is infected by the lies of feminism, doesn't it? And if the idea that a wife should be subject to her husband upsets you, then I hope you can be honest enough to say, maybe I too have been drinking of the cultural Kool-Aid, and I too need to do some deconstructing about what I think it means to be a biblical woman in a biblical marriage. Maybe you've imbibed some of this secular worldview without even really realizing it until you read 1 Peter chapter 3 and you go, ooh, that's kind of cringy, isn't it? And again, the widely accepted secular definition of love does not mean self-sacrifice. It doesn't mean other-centeredness. It doesn't mean humility or selflessness. It just means do whatever makes you feel good. But biblically, love is a weighty thing. And it presses upon you heavy demands. It's a very demanding thing. For those of us who have received the precious love of God, we understand the kind of beautiful, joyful burden that it does in fact place upon us. In these verses, love demands that a wife have great faith in God as she trusts God and subjects herself to her authority, her husband. And that submission is not meant to be a cold, rigid, hard, forced obedience, like marriage is some kind of emotional prison and she's supposed to just give herself over to the whims of her husband. This is supposed to be a free act of joyful surrender that a wife does in obedience and love for Christ. And of course, the husband then shouldn't demand submission from his wife as, this, as if this were some right that he has that he can just place upon her. Of course, that too would be unloving for a husband to demand, wife, you must submit to me because that's what the Bible says is not the way of Jesus. But when out of love for God, spouses love one another Truly, there is nothing more beautiful in all of God's creation than a marriage that functions the way that Scripture teaches a marriage should function. Now, the general principle in verses 1 through 2 is this, that the conduct of the wife should endear the husband to her, and it should also endear the husband to Christ. The conduct of the wife should endear the husband to her and also to Jesus. Her respectful and pure conduct really should tenderize her husband's heart towards her. Since really only the most hard heart enjoys the destruction of things that are pure. See, if she is pure, that should tenderize the husband's heart because who would want to destroy something pure? And her obedience to the word by the conduct of her life then should also inspire her husband to see the shocking goodness of the way of Jesus. Wife, how can you live like this when I am this kind of man? Because the way of Jesus is a shockingly good and beautiful way. And verse 1 tells us that this principle applies regardless of whether her husband is a believer or not. Now, hear me again when I say that in order for a wife to actually be obedient to these verses does not require her to have great faith in her husband. It requires her to have great faith in the teaching of God's word. It requires her to have great faith in the wisdom of God and the way of Jesus. Because we can hear all the standard objections, can't we? Maybe you've already been going over them in your own mind in response to the verses. Well, what if the husband's mean? What if he's angry? What if he doesn't treat her well? What if he's unkind or he's broken trust? Well, the question is, do you trust that if you obey God and you obey his word, 
that you will be well cared for by God, that you will be greatly rewarded for your obedience to him. That's the answer to all of those objections. Just like the slave is commanded to obey the master, but he's not required to have great faith in the master, the master might be a terrible master. But he is required to have great faith in God, confidence in what Jesus teaches. And so the Bible actually places upon the wife this command, that she should submit to her husband and show him respect, even if, Peter says, he's not a believer following the way of Jesus. In fact, Paul says it even more clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In submitting to her husband, the wife is ultimately not even submitting to him. She is submitting to the Lord. She is saying, I trust God, even in the midst of whatever my difficult circumstances might be. So the behavior of the wife is not conditional upon the actions of the husband. It is conditional upon the commands of Scripture. It's con conditional upon her faith and trust in Jesus. And Peter would also have us understand that the respectful and the pure conduct of the wife is often a, an incredibly powerful transformational testimony to the gospel. It might, in fact, eventually win the husband over to the way of Jesus because of her obedience. Now, I do want to insert one little disclaimer here. You know, if you're a wife and your husband is abusing you, that is against the law, and so you need to inform the police. And you shouldn't be embarrassed about that. If he's breaking the law, then there should be legal consequences for that behavior. And I would additionally add that if you're a Christian and you're a wife and your husband is abusing you and he calls himself a Christian, then you should also inform our elders because that would be conduct that is worthy of discipline by the body of Christ. And we as an elder team would take that very seriously. If your husband professes to be a believer, then our church would discipline him according to the teaching of Scripture. And so although wives are commanded to be subject to their husbands, don't misunderstand, this is not a biblical endorse, endorsement of abuse. This is not saying that wives are unable to take some kind of course of action, good and appropriate steps that might lead to her being protected under some kind of uh, marriage situation where she is being harmed. But please also understand that those terrible, abusive, tyrannical situations that do present themselves from time to time in marriages, they do not jettison the teaching of Scripture. They do not invalidate what Peter says here in these verses. This call for wives to have faith in God and continue in pure conduct still stands. Okay, so in verses 1 through 2, we see that the aim of the wife's conduct is really threefold. First, that she herself would obey the word. Wives, don't you long for your husbands to obey the word? Well, then you yourself be obedient to the word. If you're going to win your husband over to obedience to the scriptures, then it's going to require that you yourself be obedient to the scriptures. And this is a classic problem that presents itself in marital conflicts, isn't it? I mean, I see this so often when, as a pastor, I'm doing some kind of marriage counseling. When things are dysfunctional, one spouse will say something like, well, I will definitely start obeying what the Bible tells me that I must do as a man or a woman as soon as my spouse starts doing what they are commanded to do. Do you see how the obedience is conditional upon the behavior of the other person? To put it another way, they're arguing that since my spouse doesn't obey God's word, I don't need to obey God's word. And that's not how this works. Peter says so right here in verse 1. He says that a wife should submit to her husband and obey the teaching of Scripture in this regard, even if the husband does not obey the word. And ultimately, Peter desires, of course, 
that the husband would be won over and that he would obey God's word. And it's precisely the wife's obedience in response to his poor conduct that could eventually be the tool that God uses to capture the heart of the husband, to change him. And look, let's just be honest, like every Christian is placed under an unfair burden, right? You might be listening to this and be like, well, that's not fair. No, it's not. But that's the calling that we have been brought into in following Jesus. Still, the wife is called to carry the burden, to obey the word regardless of the actions of her husband. Now, the second aim of the wife's conduct is that her husband might be one to Christ. Peter believes that in being obedient, that the husband might, or the, yeah, the husband might see in the conduct of his wife, not even her, but ultimately the heart of Jesus, the way of Christ. And, and so then she has the potential to win her husband over. But she also has the potential to win herself over. This is one of the realities of obedience, one of the features of obedience. That the more that you walk in obedience, do you know what you learn? The more beautiful it is to walk in obedience. The more you act in obedience, the more you see that the way of obedience is a beautiful, good, and right way. And so by being obedient to the teaching of Scripture, the wife not only has the opportunity to bless her husband, but she has the opportunity to be blessed. And let's point out, that if God is sovereign, which I believe he is, and he's wise, then God does not make mistakes in the marriages that he ordains. He really doesn't. God did not make a mistake in making you a woman or a man. God did not make a mistake in making you a wife or a husband. God did not make a mistake in having you be married to the particular spouse that you are married to, God has called you to this. He has ordained this in his wisdom. And if for no other reason than just for your own good, that you might be sanctified, that you might learn to trust him more, that you might grow in your obedience, that you might grow in the way of love and be refined, the third aim of the wife in being subject to her husband then is that she might endear the husband to herself through her conduct that is respectful and pure. Um, I think that sometimes wives believe that if they obey this teaching of Scripture to be subject of their husbands, that they're surrendering all of the power in the relationship. And there's a sense in which that is true, um, but if you know anything about the way of Jesus, then you know that this is not about acquiring power. Like, we are not invited to follow Jesus so that we might gain power. Christians are not supposed to seek power for themselves. We are content to be a people who've actually chosen to be powerless so that Christ might rule and reign over us. The Christian life is a life of surrender. It's not a life of seeking power. But you know what's interesting? I think Peter actually seems to believe that a woman has great power in the relationship, even as she submits. It is true it is not the power of authority. It's not the power of control. It's not the power to manipulate. It's a much greater power. It's the power of humility. It's the power of selflessness, the power of a quiet spirit. The wife has the power of purity. It's the power of Jesus who said, learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. The power of Christ, where was it most wonderfully displayed? It was displayed in the cross. That's the kind of power that the wife has here in the marriage. Submission to God and humility and sacrificial love. That is the power of Christ in us. And it's a far greater power than a power of domineering or control. 
It looks like the cross. And so through submission to the Lord, the wife exerts the power of humility in the relationship of her marriage to endear her husband to herself. You know, a hammer is not the only force that can shape stone. Maybe you've seen valleys where water has ran over the jagged edges of stone faithfully, gently, continually. And what does it do to the stone? It softens it. It makes it smooth. And so we can almost hear Peter saying, Wives, is your husband hard towards you? Is his heart jagged? Well, trust in God and let the power of your pure conduct and your humble, respectful way of living be the tool that God uses to soften his heart. And there's no absolute guarantee, I admit to you, there's no absolute guarantee in these verses that if she lives this way, that the result, the outcome will be that her husband is soft towards her and his heart is transformed to love Jesus. But this is a far more effective way than a wife who is combative, a wife who is aggressive or defiant, isn't it? So the wife is supposed to show respect and pure conduct. What do these words mean? Let's talk about them a little bit more for a minute. Uh, Wives, to be respectful of your husband means in part that you don't belittle him. Don't speak diminishing words to him, to his face. Don't speak poorly about him to your friends or to other women. Don't speak poorly of him to your children. This doesn't mean that you can't criticize your husband. Your husband probably has some things that need to be criticized. But it means that you go into those critical conversations with the Desire to be constructive, not destructive. You want to build up even with your criticism, not tear down or destroy. It's criticism that must be spoken to him so that he might be a better man, not spoken about him to other people or not spread publicly. And that criticism must be done in love. It must be done with the intention to see him be a better man It must be done with his best interest in mind, not in a desire to demean him or destroy him. To respect your husband means also that you remember you're not his mother. And if for some reason your husband wants you to be his mother, that's immature. Do not play along. But you are not to mother your husband. Don't treat him like a child. I would add that to be respectful of your husband means that you should be an encourager. I know as a man and from conversations with men that many men feel discouraged. They already know that they're not the men that they should be. They already feel a burden that they're not the men they want to be. And so a little encouragement from a wife goes a long way to inspire a husband, to encourage him to be the man that he should be. Far more power is built in that encouragement than in nagging or discouragement. And if you can't respect your husband for his actions, maybe the way that he lives is not respectable, still you can respect him for the position that he holds as the authority in the home. He carries a great burden in being the authority over his family. In some way, I actually pity men Because they will stand before God and they will be accountable for the authority that they have been given as the leaders of their homes. Every deed in that role as authority will be called to account. And that alone is worthy of respect, even if sometimes your husband does not carry out that role in a respectful way. Furthermore, to respect your husband means that you're a suitable helper for him. Um, Again, this is an aspect of feminism that basically says men and women are, you know, essentially interchangeable. There's no real distinct differences. But biblically, Genesis 2 tells us the wife was created to be a helper for her husband. 
That's a distinct role that she was created to play. Wives, is that how you think of your role in marriage? What would it look like for you to be a helper for your husband? Have you ever asked your husband, what would it look like for me to fulfill that role as helper? I wonder how he would answer that. And of course, we would want the husband to be worthy of the respect of his wife. That's true. We want to call husbands to that. But his worthiness, once again, is irrelevant. The wife should respect her husband because in the context of what Peter is talking about here, we are discussing proper authority in God's created order. And the husband is the head of the wife. He is her authority. And so let me be perfectly clear on this point. As Christians, we wholeheartedly, joyfully, boldly accept the patriarchy. That is our view of the family. Patriarchy patriarchy has become a dirty word in our culture. But as Christians, this is exactly what we teach. And we are not at all ashamed of it. This does not mean that a husband is free to just do whatever he wants and the wife is there to just satisfy all of his whims and desires. No, quite the contrary. With great authority comes great responsibility. And so to believe in the patriarchy means that as men, we believe we will be accountable to God for our families, for our wives, for our children, for our actions. And the authority which Jesus has modeled for us as Christians, is authority that is humble. It's a servant leadership. It's selfless. But Christians actually do believe, according to the very clear teaching of Scripture, that the husband is the head of the wife. And for that reason, then, a wife should respect her husband. Moving on to the idea of pure conduct... Peter mentions here that a wife's conduct should be pure. I don't think he has in mind here sexual purity, although that would certainly be included in what it means to be pure. But I think actually Peter is probably more in line with what 1 John chapter 3 verse 3 says. It uses the same word and it says, everyone who hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. So what Peter has in mind here is primarily a moral or spiritual purity. It is a wholehearted devotion to God. And of course, if you have this purity of heart that makes you devoted to God, then the outpouring of that devotion to Jesus is going to be naturally devotion to your husband because that's what a proper marriage looks like. You will love your husband more with a pure heart as you love God more with a pure heart. You'll be subject to your husband more as you are subject to Christ more and you trust him more. You'll serve your husband more as you serve Christ more. And so at this point, I offer just another application question for reflection for wives. What kind of goals do you have for your marriage in relation to your husband. I would say those goals should be to grow in your faith and trust in God so that you can be more faithfully subject to your husband. To have Christ-honoring conduct towards your husband, respect for his authority, Because that is proof of purity in your heart towards Jesus, your Lord and Savior. Next, then, Peter transitions to a discussion on beauty and modesty in verses 3 through 4. Part of a woman's devotion to her husband, I would say, is to guard her beauty for her husband. This is not a, I don't think Peter has in mind here, a wholesale prohibition on women. Uh, having some kind of external beauty, um, making themselves externally beautiful. The reason why is because what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about the right relationship between husband and wife. So he doesn't say 
wholesale prohibition on you know, women looking beautiful in any way, shape, or form. He's saying, in the context of marriage, where should your desire for beauty be centered? It's certainly, I would say, acceptable for a wife to externally adorn herself so that her husband will say, wow, God, my wife is beautiful. I'm captivated by her beauty as it reflects the beauty of God himself. Like Adam said when Eve was brought to him, he gave glory to God for the woman that God had made. But the point here ultimately is that true beauty is a matter of the heart. I think every woman, some down, somewhere deep down, in, I mean, I'm not one, so I don't know for sure, but I, I suspect that every woman deep down somewhere inside wants to feel beautiful. I think that that is a characteristic that God has put in the hearts of women. And so Peter reminds women that true beauty flows from the heart. It is a matter of the heart. A beautiful woman with an ugly heart is an ugly thing, isn't it? And women in particular are, are prone to investing much into making their external beauty apparent to the world, aren't they? I mean, dudes, how long does it take you to get ready for church? Like three minutes. Ladies, how long does it take you to get ready for church? Three minutes. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty there. You know, women just are, are generally prone to investing more of their time and their effort and their energy into their external beauty. But Peter would have wives remember that a far better investment of their time would be to adorn their hearts with an internal beauty, a spiritual beauty, an imperishable beauty, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. To have a beautiful heart in the eyes of God is a far far greater thing than to receive the adoration that might come from the lustful eyes of men. And so women, do you spend as much time putting on Christ as you spend putting on your clothes or your makeup? And certainly included here is the idea of guarding your external beauty for your husband. Because again, Peter's speaking to husbands and wives. So provocative clothing in public, this is just a frank discussion on modesty, trying to entice men who are not your husband to view you as an object of their lust, that's the kind of thing that a Christian wife should reject. You know, publicly wearing low-cut shirts or leggings as a kind of pants or, you know, just dressing in ways that try to attract the eyes of men who are not your husband— that's inappropriate for us as Christians. Uh, there is an appropriate place for that, for wives, right? It's in the context of your bedroom. Sex is a beautiful thing that God has given to married couples. And sexuality is ordained by God as a beautiful part of his creation. And so there's a place for that, but it is for your husband. That sexual beauty that you have is for him to admire and him alone. But I want you to see, because I find it really interesting, Peter specifically talks in verse 4 about whose sight. He talks about God's sight. Peter's concerned with what God sees. What does God delight to see when he looks upon a woman? Certainly not the things that sinful, lustful men might delight to see. God delights to see a woman with an internal imperishable beauty, a beauty that reflects a heart of love for Jesus. And you already know this, don't you? That one day as a woman, your external beauty is going to fade. Your external beauty is perishable. But what's amazing about internal beauty is it has the inverse effect Whereas time diminishes external beauty, time walking with Jesus only increases the internal beauty. 
My wife on our wedding day was so beautiful to me. The beauty of her walking down the aisle is one of the greatest things that I've ever beheld with my eyes. But my wife is more beautiful to me today than she's ever been because she's even more like Jesus today than she was 15 years ago when we got married. And so a wife who seeks to adorn herself with imperishable beauty that is precious in the sight of God, that's a wonderful thing, a great gift to a husband, and beauty that is beyond beauty that can be measured in external aspects. And, and, and women, don't these verses speak to you? Again, I'm not a woman, so I'm, I'm only like speculating or basing these thoughts on conversations that I've had in marriage counseling or conversations with my wife. Don't these verses speak to a deep, deep need present in your heart? One of the things that I have heard time and again in marriage counseling is that women have a deep need to be seen and to be known. I think a lot of dudes could like go through life just not being seen and not being known. And a lot of us would be like totally fine with that, right? But to have the hidden person of the heart seen and known and understood, doesn't that speak to your heart as a woman? I can't tell you how many times in marriage counseling a wife will say something like, I just want to be seen. I just want my husband to understand me. I just want him to hear me. I just want him to know me. And I just want to be known by him. And I want to know him. Well, Peter is here seeking to remind wives that those desires that are there in your heart, they have been met by God. He is the one who sees you. He knows you. The hidden things in your heart, he understands them. And what if your husband never meets those needs? That would be tragic and we would want him to grow in his ability to do that. But the truth is, God meets those needs. He knows the hidden person of your heart. Your heart is precious in his eyes. And so you can rejoice and rest in the truth that you are known. You are understood. You are heard. You are loved. And God will reward you with even greater beauty and even greater love if you are the kind of woman that Peter teaches us about, who seeks to clothe yourself in the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And you can continue in doing that work regardless of how your husband might behave Because you are well cared for by God himself. You are loved. You are treasured by him. Now finally, we get to the example which Peter gives us in verses 5 through 6. And I love here that Peter takes us way back, way, way back to the old way of doing things. He takes us to the old times. And he says, wives, be be more like those women of old. Uh, once again, in our culture, we live in an age of progressivism, right? Progressivism says that humanity is progressing. We're getting better. We're making progress. And how are we making progress? Well, we are leaving behind those old ways, right? Those archaic Neanderthal ways of doing human experience. But progressivism is a lie, It's an ugly untruth. Something like feminism that is connected to progressivism is not good at all. It's not progress. It actually tells women what? It tells women that they should be more like men. It says really there's nothing beautiful about being a woman or being feminine. What's beautiful is to be like a man. Go get a job. Go be tough. You've heard me say this before, but this is a really important principle. What is good for a thing is always in accordance with its nature. What is good for a thing is always in accordance with its nature. 
So it is good to use Drano to unclog your plumbing. It's bad to use Drano to put in your cereal. It's bad to use Drano to brush your teeth. It's bad to use Drano as coffee creamer, right? Because Drano is made for a purpose, to clear out clogs in your drains. It's good to fill your car gas tank with gasoline. It's not good to fill your car gas tank with milk. So what is good for a woman is in accordance with her nature. And what is good for a man is in accordance with his nature. It is always good for a thing that it operates according to its purpose and design. And so it's good for a wife to live the way that God designed her, the way that he made her, to be a woman, to be under the authority of her husband, to seek to be beautiful in the eyes of God. And so Peter points back to Sarah and Abraham. He says, the old way of doing things is good. This is found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. And Peter simply says, their wives, you can find a model for what it looks like to be a good wife, to show your husband respect. Now let's look for just a minute at that last phrase as we close. Peter says, you are Sarah's children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. This takes some thinking. I think uh, we need to ponder this for a minute. It's kind of an interesting way of putting things because typically in the Bible, we are called as Christians children of Abraham. Why are we called children of Abraham? Well, because Abraham had faith in God And when we share a faith like Abraham's faith, we trust in God, we are then called children of Abraham. But Peter has no problem telling wives that when they submit to their husbands, they prove themselves to be daughters of Sarah, children of Sarah. Why is that? Well, because the faith that undergirds our obedience is proof that we love God. By faith, we're children of God and therefore children of Abraham. Abraham showed his faith through obedience to God. Sarah shows her faith in God through obedience to her husband. And that obedience to her husband is ultimately obedience to God, faith in God. So in other words, Peter's saying that for a wife to obey this teaching, to submit to her husband what she is really doing is she's proving that she shares the same faith that, Ab- or that, that Sarah had. A faith that made her a daughter of God. Sincere faith. And so look, if as a wife, you feel frightened by what might happen if you stop trying to hold on to control, If you feel frightened as a wife, what might happen if you obey this command and you are subject to your husband? Peter would tell you here at the end of this section that you don't need to fear. You don't need to be afraid of something that might appear frightening. Simply have faith in God. Trust in him. Be bold and courageous to believe in him. To obey what he commands. And maybe you're a dude and you're sitting here and you're like, all right, well, none of this is for me. I could have uh, skipped out and stayed home this Sunday. No, this principle applies generally to all of us. Men and women alike, single or married, the church is called the bride of Christ, which means that we as Christians are subject to Christ, the head of the church. Each of us must submit to him. And we must have no fear in doing so because we trust him, we believe, and he is trustworthy. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, what did Jesus do with all power and authority in heaven and on earth? He laid down his life in love. And so we can be certain that if we obey him, he will not abuse us. It will go well for us. We do not need to be frightened. We are well cared for under his authority. 
which means that wives who trust God and who obey the command of Scripture to submit to their husband, they're going to be well cared for by Jesus. And all of us who trust in Christ and submit to his commands, what will happen? In the end, we will stand victorious. Though we ought to fear God by doing good and following his commands in faith, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to pray first for the women and the wives in this room that might be hurting because in their marriage, in their experience, their husband is not worthy of respect. And I pray that you would meet them in that pain, meet them in that discomfort, and I pray that you would minister to them there, that you would increase their faith in you, that you would heal that pain and that sorrow and that suffering, and that you would give them the courage and the strength and the endurance that they need to be obedient to your word. I pray that you would see them and that you would understand them and that you would know them and that you would be approving of their internal beauty that only you can see. I pray for the wives in this room who have husbands that are unbelievers. Lord, we pray for those husbands that they would surrender their hearts and their lives to you, Jesus, and that the conduct of their wives, their pure spirit, their desire to honor you, their submission to their husband would be the tool that you use to transform the hearts of their husbands and that those men would come to trust in Christ and rejoice in the wives that you have given them that were faithful to pray and love them and point them to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the husbands and the men in this room that they would use their authority like Jesus with humility and selflessness that their leadership would not be domineering but would be a self-serving or a servant kind of leadership. Lord, I pray that you would help the wives in this room simply be obedient to this teaching, that they might trust you, that there is great reward and great goodness to be found in obedience to Christ. And Lord, I pray for each of us, everyone, that we would be subject to Christ, our head, that it would be our desire to love him and to serve him and to honor him. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.